Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Titus. We're going to continue our studies in Titus. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9 in chapter 1 tonight. And so Titus, as we began this morning, the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege that he had left behind on the island of Crete, he gives a specific task to. He says, it's up to you to help the church be organized and to appoint leaders over the congregations. And we want to look at the questions tonight about why do we need leaders in the church and what are the qualifications, what are the qualities for good leadership in a local church. And so the word of the Lord says this, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul, writing to Titus, said, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on what we do tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word meets us at the practical level of our necessities. We thank you that you teach us the riches of your word so that our lives can be changed and directed in a certain way. We want to be people who are godly and we want our church to be what it should be. Thank you for the encouragement of your word tonight to look into your word, to see why we need leadership, what the qualities are of leadership. I pray that you'll help us to use this tonight to the praise of your glory. So speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you went to the Woodstock Festival in upstate New York in 1968. Anybody go to Woodstock? Do we have any Woodstockies in here? I am not seeing any hands raised. Well, you may be, well, I'm not surprised, but <laughs> you, I am not surprised, but because if you went, you wouldn't raise your hand. <laughs> there may be some of you in here who went and are not going to raise your hand, but, but you're aware of Woodstock. You're aware of this, of this thing. You're aware that in 1968, there were a couple of guys who thought, you know, you can make a lot of money by having a, a, a rock festival. And so they put together this thing in upstate New York that was going to be three days of music and love and peace. And so they, they put out uh, tickets for this thing, and they had all over the world. There were people in Europe that were hawking the tickets and people in this, the great cities of the United States that were selling the tickets. Or at, You didn't have to pay for the ticket, by the way. They gave you the ticket, and you were supposed to pay when you got to the event. Well, a half a million kids showed up, which is not what they expected. And, and they didn't make a nickel. They didn't collect on a single ticket. They had a half a million people uh, that came to listen to the music. And every, all the kids thought it was wonderful. The music was spectacular, you know. That was their opinion. But there were some problems with the logistics. When, the, when a half a million kids show up and you don't know they're coming, there's no parking. Uh, but the porta potties started overflowing within days, you know, hours of the thing uh, arriving. Uh, there wasn't any place for anybody to sleep. The kids had to sleep in the, the they were in Max Yasger's dairy farm. 
Yazgar had this field that was kind of a natural amphitheater and he, he leased it to these people to have the festival. And so you got a half a million kids sleeping on the ground right in front of the stage and then the rain came and it turned into a mud fest. But not to worry because they had arranged for proper security. They had arranged for proper security. They had hired a commune from California called the Hog Farm. And the Hog Farm was led by a man by the name of Wavy Gravy. I kid you not. And Wavy Gravy looked at the situation and the need for security and immediately thought, we need a police force to keep things in line. Only police were not in fashion. So they decided to have a police force. It was a police force. So Wavy Gravy and the people from the commune would walk through the crowd saying, please pick up your trash. Please let that guy out of the headlock you've got him in. Please try to keep your clothes on, at least during the daylight hours. I mean, this, this, is the kind, this was what security was like at Woodstock. And as you can imagine, it didn't go over, very, it didn't work very well. Security did not function very well. But whenever you have any organization, whenever you have anybody come together, and especially when you have a group of people, a large group or even a small group, there has to be organization. There has to be leadership. Somebody's got to be in charge. Otherwise, you end up sleeping in the mud for three days and running out of food. There wasn't enough food. The, peop the people of upstate New York should have, uh, they, should get, they should get medals for what they did. They had a half a million kids out there with no food, and so people literally emptied their pantries and took it and fed these kids so that the kids wouldn't starve to death while they listened to music. I mean, it was an amazing thing. But you've got to have organization, and you've got to have somebody in charge. Otherwise, the church just turns into another Woodstock. We end up sleeping in the mud. We end up not having any organization. We end up not having any security. If you don't have somebody in charge, even of the church, and we're talking about local church, we know that God, that Jesus himself is in charge of the church universal. But in a local church, there must be organization. There has to be somebody who has the responsibility under God of providing organization and security in the church. The big idea we're gonna be looking at tonight is because that believers need leadership Godly men are to be ordained in each congregation. God has as his purpose that in every local church, somebody will be ordained, set apart for the ministry of making sure that the church runs effectively and is effective in ministry. So uh, Paul is writing back to this young man, Titus, as we explained this morning, that he is left behind in Crete. They have this, these groups of new believers, apparently in a number of cities on the island, and they've been organized, they're just, they're just brand new believers, and they've been organized into churches. But the one thing that Paul has not done is he has not organized leadership for them. And so he's given uh, Titus this task of naming elders over the church and putting people in charge of the church. And tonight, we're going to listen in as the Apostle Paul explains why leadership is necessary, and then what are the qualities of good leadership in a local church. And our study tonight is going to be organized around four headings. In verse 5, we're going to look at why leaders are necessary. 
And then following that, we're going to have an examination of the qualities needed for good leadership in verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, we're going to see that leaders must be above reproach personally. In verses 7 through 8, we're going to see that leaders must be above reproach temperamentally. And then in verse 9, we're going to find that leadership should be above reproach spiritually. So that's our plan for what we're doing tonight. Let's begin in verse 5 asking the question, why is leadership necessary? Why is leadership necessary? Do you ever think about that? I mean, after all, this is the body of Christ. You know, we've all come to faith in Christ. Uh, I, I, I understand that not everybody in a, a local church has come to genuine faith in Christ. But we assume that the majority of people who are in a local church actually know Jesus Christ, are being, uh, submitting themselves to his will. Why then can't you just have wavy gravy in charge of the thing? Right? I mean, why, if, 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 if that was the philosophy of Woodstock, I mean, the philosophy of Woodstock was everybody's kind of in charge of themselves. We're, we'll kind of give you some good advice and let's see, let's see where it goes. Why can't you do that in a local church? Why, why is it necessary to have leadership in the local church? If we're all Christians and we're all being led by the Lord and we're all under the Spirit, wouldn't it make sense for us to be able to have a commune kind of church? And I can tell you with a fair amount of certainty that if you give that a try, you're going to be disappointed pretty quickly. Do do you think so? You think you might? I think you might, and the Scripture would agree with you. Actually, the plan is that we've got to have leadership for the church. We have to do it. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, another another question that we can ask is not only why do you have to have leadership, but why do you have to have on-site leadership? The Apostle Paul doesn't seem to have done that. The Apostle Paul would lead people to the Lord, he would found these churches, and then he would be gone. But he would write back, and he he would send these letters and say, now look, this is what you need to be doing. Why can't you do it that way? Could you have leadership over a local church that's remote? Where, where somebody like the Apostle Paul just kind of drops in every once in a while and checks things out and makes a few suggestions and writes an occasional letter of helpful hints that might be, that might be good. Uh, maybe we can do it with remote leadership. But Paul's instructions to Titus leave us in no doubt that those options are not left open to us. That what God expects is for every local assembly to have certain men that are ordained to the ministry of taking care of God's people. There are certain people that are going to be men that are going to be set apart over every congregation who have the obligation of keeping the thing on track, of of making sure that the church functions as it should. And Paul gives us two reasons for doing that. When he writes to Titus in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete. I left you here to do this. First thing he says is, so that you might put what remained in order. It's necessary for us to have orderliness in any human institution. And I understand that the church is a divine institution, but there's also a human part of it. Every local assembly has a human institutional aspect to it. And so it's necessary that there be leadership over any human institution. You know, I suppose it's obvious that when everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge. I mean, that's what happened at Woodstock. Everybody was in charge and nobody was in charge. And that's what will happen in a local church if you don't have people who are appointed and ordained to this ministry. Now, this is the reason that that doesn't work is because sin has entered into humanity. And even though we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
Even though Christ has changed our destiny, even though the Holy Spirit lives within us, there is still a sin nature that's moving on the inside of each one of us. We've all discovered that, haven't we? You don't have to be in the faith very long to figure out that just because you've come to faith in Christ doesn't mean that you're automatically perfect and everything's going to be smooth sailing all the way home. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way in a local church either. Did you know that sin sometimes gets loose in the local church? Uh, Did you know that people can be prideful and people can be arrogant and people can be uh, demanding and they can say my way or the highway, even in the local church? It doesn't seem like something that ought to happen. It seems like the Bible would tell us, as it does, that we ought to give place to one another, that we ought to be bearing with one another, that we ought to be a family that uh, works together and tries to keep everything on track together. But every now and again, human nature takes over. And uh, it doesn't mean that the people who, who go off the rails are necessarily unsaved or not God's people. We are all capable of this at some point. Can I get an amen? Listen, we're all capable of this. And if you don't have somebody who does what uh, Paul has sent Titus to do, which is to ordain leadership and put leadership in place over the local church, there's nobody to check the, the disease. There's no remedy for the disease. Somebody has to be there that can diagnose the problem and bring things back into order. God's solution for the problem of sin in humanity is human government. We don't have to go any farther back than the ninth chapter of Genesis to understand that God has ordained human government. And the reason God has done that is to suppress evil. And in just that same way, there must be government in the church so that when problems arise, somebody is there to put things back in order. So the first reason why there has to be order, there has to be leadership in the church is to keep things in order. Leadership is needed to establish many things in the church. For example, a godly vision for ministry. If a a church does not have a vision, if a church does not understand what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go and who you're trying to minister to and how you're trying to do it, if somebody is not there setting those objectives for the church, the church will simply go nowhere. It will just just, uh, uh, stagnate on itself. You've got to have somebody who's in charge, who's given direction, who is saying, let's go this way. Godly leadership is needed for establishing goals. It's needed for setting the goals that will fulfill the vision. It's needed to ordain the means for carrying out those goals. It's needed to follow up on the performance of those who are in ministry. And it's needed to put out the personal fires that so often arise in a congregation of God's people. In a word, Even the church needs somebody to be in charge. So the first motive is that organization is necessary. But look at what Paul says further in verse 5. He says, now this is what I want you to do. We're not going to do this by remote control. We're not going to have a Zoom meeting uh, of of, uh, the leadership in the church is going to be 400 miles away, but we're going to Zoom in and send you some letters every now and again. He says, no. The leadership has to be local. He says, I want you to appoint elders in every town. I want there to be leadership in every town. And we might scratch our our head at that and say, you know, if you had the ability to have the Apostle Paul as the leader of your church, wouldn't it be really good? I mean, if, if Paul could be the leader of your church, even though he's 400 miles away and just sending you letters, wouldn't that be better to have really competent remote leadership 
than mediocre people who were sitting in the pews every Sunday? And the answer is no, it would not. It would not. God ordains that there will be leaders, local leaders in every local church. And we can rely on that because we know who it is who's building the church. Who's building the church? Who's building our church? Is it, is it Pastor Todd? Is it Andy? Is it our elders? Uh, is it Pastor Jordan? Who is building our church? And the answer is none of those people. It's Jesus Christ himself that is building his church. Jesus is not only building the church universal. He's not only building the church all over the world. He's not only building the church of all time. He is building this church, our church. Jesus is building this church. And Jesus is the one who takes it as part of his duty to build the church, to make sure that there are competent leaders in every local assembly, in our assembly or in any other local assembly. You can trust the Lord to give you the resources you need to have good leadership in a local church. And, and, and when you think about the, the, uh, the context that this is being established in, I mean, this is, these are, are little assemblies of brand new believers in Jesus Christ. This is, this is very early in these people's Christian lives in a certain sense. And they probably got some people who've been Jewish uh, believers for a long time and have converted to, to Christ, converted to Christianity, and have some knowledge of the Scripture. So you may have some people that have some spiritual background in the things of the Lord, but for the most part, these assemblies are being made up of people who are almost brand new Christians. And yet there's still the confidence that there will be people that God has placed in that congregation, in each of those local congregations, who can do the work that is necessary to do. The point in this verse is simply that leadership is needed and available and made available by God's grace everywhere that Christ establishes his church. There will not be a local assembly that Christ has not got somebody in mind. If Christ is the one who's raising up that local assembly, there will be people in that assembly, men in that assembly, that God will have ordained to be able to do this work of ruling over his church. And when I say rule over his church, I do not mean it in a way of, uh, of, of having the church under your thumb, but I mean it as servant leadership, which is what the scripture de uh, declares that we should have. So the first quality, is, uh, the first uh, point to establish is simply that leadership is necessary and it's available by God's grace everywhere that Christ establishes his church. Now, when we move on into verse six, we begin to, to uh, think about the qualities of leadership. So, okay, Titus, you're going to appoint leaders over every church. Now, what kind of people, what kind of men are you going to be looking for to do this? And I want to suggest to you that in verse 6, he gives a particular quality of a man, a person, that is to be looked for to serve as an elder over the church. The first quality is that the elder must be above reproach personally. An elder must be above reproach personally. Listen to what he says. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It's interesting that in this qualification, he goes to the family as the lens through which to find these people. He says that you need to be looking for people who've got well-established families. He says, first of all, the kind of man that you're looking for to rule over your church 
must be a one-woman man. Must be a one-woman man. Now, what does that mean? Now, there are different opinions in different groups about this. There are some groups, and we, my wife and I have come from a group, that would say that if you've been divorced, for example, you would not fit this qualification. That's unconvincing to me. I don't think that's what he's got in mind. Christ saves us where we're at, doesn't he? He doesn't check you at the door and say, well, now, look, I'm not, you're going to have to be a second-class citizen for the rest of your life because you had this before you came to Christ. I'm unconvinced that that's a proper interpretation of this. But I am convinced that the proper interpretation is simply this. You must be an individual who's totally devoted to the person you are married to. You cannot be a person who's got eyes for others. You cannot be a person who is attracted to others and gives in to that attraction. You must be someone who is devoted to your spouse. And then he says, you must be somebody who is raising your family well. You should be somebody who's raising your children well. His children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You must have a control of the family. That word control gives us a, a funny feeling in the back of our neck in our generation. We don't like the idea that, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, a father would be controlling or, you know, the parents would be controlling. But dear ones, if somebody's not, in, if somebody's not controlling the family, chaos will reign, right? I mean, it, it'll work that way. And so you have to have a family, not uh, oppressed in an oppressive sense of control, but a family that's orderly, that's dignified, where people are being uh, taught the Word of God, where uh, their family's being well-managed. Paul talks to Timothy about this as well in 1 Timothy 3, 3 and 4. He expands on this, this uh, issue. He says, the individual must manage his household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if somebody doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And the idea here is that in a certain sense, the family is, is the, 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 the lens through which we can see whether people have leadership ability or not. How do you know if people have leadership ability or not? One way is to see what, how their family is managed. So the idea that here is that those who lead God's church must be above reproach in their homes. They must be above reproach personally in their homes. Now look at verses 7 and 8. There's another quality. And he says that the people who are going to lead God's church must be above reproach temperamentally. They must be above reproach temperamentally. Verses 7 and 8, an overseer, that's another word for elder, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Instead, he needs to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I want to suggest to you that what is being talked about here is a temperateness of personality, a temperateness of character. I guess the best way, maybe we can use a phrase that, that's currently used among us. Easy does it. Easy does it. You know, when you think about the people who've been good leaders in churches that you've served in, there's always this quality of quietness and dignity about them, not, not softness, not people who do not have their own opinions or have firm convictions about what the truth is, but a gentleness in dealing with others. 
Uh, I can remember uh, my dad was a, was a pastor when I, when I was growing up. And I can remember a guy in our church, Frank Christ. Frank Christ was the epitome of this. He, he was just, he was a godly man who had this good common sense uh, and knew how to deal with others. And when my dad took that church, the church had been a church where they had a very strong conviction that you were not allowed to eat in the basement of the church. Do you remember the days when you couldn't, we would die here. Bible Fellowship Church. I mean, if there's no food, there's no ministry at BFC up until the time, pan, you know, the pandemic hit. Because, I mean, there's food connected to everything. Well, at, well, at the, the church, this church at that time, people had very strong conviction that that was ungodly and that you didn't do that. And so they had, as many churches did in those days, a homecoming. And that meant once a year they had a celebration of the church's anniversary and you had a great big picnic on the grounds. And so they, they had this picnic on the grounds and the, the, all of that wonderful food that those good old Baptist ladies know how to cook that good home-cooked fried chicken, you know, when people still knew how to fry chicken and people, homemade pies and wonderful cakes and all these great casseroles and everything. They're all scattered out on tables out on the church lawn, you know. And we got all these chairs out there. And just as people were loading up their plates and sat down, the heavens began to open. And everybody sat there looking at each other, saying, what do we do now? And without saying a word, Frank Christ got up out of his chair, took his plate, and walked into the church of the, base, the basement of the church. And everybody followed him. And that was the end of that conviction at Timberlake Baptist Church. You see, that's the quiet, temperate kind of leadership that's in view here. It isn't a leadership that pounds on people. It's a leadership that says, follow me as I follow Christ. It, it doesn't make any sense for us to sit out here in the rain. Let's just take our, our plates and go inside and have a wonderful time together as the body of Christ. That's one of the qualities that you're looking for in leadership, this temperateness. Those who lead God's church must be above reproach temperamentally. And then in verse 9, the last quality is those who lead God's church must be above reproach spiritually. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This goes back to what we were talking about in this morning's message, doesn't it? That the heart of what we do in the church is to open the word of God to people so that they understand what it means and they see how it uh, uh, applies to their lives, how it changes our lives, what it demands of us, what we can do to follow it. And so one of the qualifications for an elder is that they must be people who are mature in the faith. We have to be people who are mature in the faith if we're going to be leaders of God's church. And we're able to take people into a, a soundness of doctrine and able to be able to refute improper doctrine when it comes through the doors of the church, because this will happen. Now, Paul also in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 6, gives uh, a, another expansion of this. He says that because of the need for spiritual maturity and leadership, the leader, the one who's chosen to be a leader, must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Maturity in the faith means that a man cannot be easily knocked off his feet. And new believers do not fit that qualification. A new believer is a real believer. They're just as saved as anybody else in the church, but they're not ready to be in leadership. New believers are unstable in the nature of the case. Until we come to a a deeper understanding of Christian doctrine, until the truths of the faith have gripped our hearts, we're not ready to serve in leadership. And so Paul says, now don't pick out a new, a new believer to do this. Isn't it ironic that he would write to the churches in Crete who are filled with new believers and say, now, whoever you pick in your congregation can't be a new believer. Woo, now that's giving Titus something to, to work with, isn't it? But what he's after here is this maturity that comes. A man must be spiritually mature. You know, many a man is disqualified from leadership, not because he doesn't understand and believe the Bible, but because he lacks the discernment and courage to correct those who err. It's one thing to know the Scripture, but it's another thing to have the courage of your conviction so that when conflict arises in the church, you can properly address it. So we're looking for people who are mature in their faith. This is what we're looking for in leadership. The point of this verse is that those who lead God's church must be above reproach spiritually. Now, that's just passing through the passage. What I'd like to do now is just come back and make three very simple and brief points of application, ways that we can use the information that God is sharing with us out of his word tonight. I want to make three points. Number one, in order to ordain godly leaders in the church, we have to have more than a passing acquaintanceship with those that are being considered as candidates. In order to ordain leadership in the church, we have to have more than a passing acquaintanceship with those who are being considered as candidates for leadership. Those who are nominating men for leadership and those who are vetting and selecting the ones who will lead have to have a fairly close personal knowledge of the individual who's being considered. It's foolish beyond the telling to nominate people that we do not know well to leadership in God's church. You must know who it is that you're nominating. Uh, What is a man's family life like? How does he react when placed under pressure? Can he teach? These are some of the questions that we ought to be able to answer before nominating or choosing a man for leadership in a local church. Do we know this individual well enough to know that they meet the qualifications? Second application I think we can make is that those nominated and chosen for service in the church must not be new members of the body. Do not make the mistake of putting new members of the body into significant leadership positions. You know, it's always tempting when someone new joins the church to make a quick judgment about their potential usefulness or how they might fit into a certain ministry or office. But this too is foolish beyond the telling. No one can be truly known for who they are quickly. Easy does it works here too. The wisest among us will look at new members and say, let's see how they wear for a while before we decide about putting them in leadership. And my mother was great on this. My mother had a sixth sense. Some of you might have a sixth sense. You know what I mean? My mother could discern. And we would have new people show up at our church and people would say, boy, they, they, they really look impressive. We could fit them in here. We could fit them in there. And my mother would never say this to the church, but she would say to my dad, you better be careful. 
you better be careful. You better check this out before you do that. And that's the kind of caution we need. We need to know people thoroughly before we put them in leadership. And new people are not appropriate to serve in leadership of a local church until we have seen them serve. And that really is the third point. Nobody should be appointed to an important position of leadership who hasn't first served well in a position of less significance. No one should be appointed to a position, an important position of leadership who hasn't first served well in a position of less significance. We're often tempted to put people in high positions of leadership in the church because they have high positions of responsibility in our community. Churches will often make this mistake. A man has a very responsible position in the community, and he may be fulfilling that very well. Do not think that that qualifies that man for leadership in the church. It's a different kind of thing. There is a, there's a sad list of bad decisions that have been made because people were important in their community and significant in their community, but they had an insignificant faith in Jesus Christ, and they were put into position of leadership in the church. So we need to avoid that. We need to be careful. It's usually a trap. Some of the worst leadership decisions in the church come from men who are significant in their community and insignificant in their faith. Before anyone is put into a significant position of leadership in the church, he or she must have proven themselves by doing diligently and faithfully the duties of lesser importance for the good of the body. Well, you'll be relieved to know we are now in the season of choosing leaders for next year for BFC. And you've already turned in your nomination forms. And you're saying to me, why are you telling us this now? It's too late. No, it's not too late. Because next year, you're going to get another chance. And don't worry. Now, don't worry about this. The process here at Bible Fellowship Church is a good process where the elders who are godly men are going to carefully consider everybody you've nominated. And they're going to take these qualifications into account before they name anybody to be an elder of Bible Fellowship Church. You see, there are safeguards that are, that are built in so that we do not violate common sense and what the Scripture tells us to do. And you can have confidence that the people that will be chosen this year will be of good quality because our men who are in charge of this are diligent. Next year, you'll get another opportunity to nominate, and maybe next year you'll look at things a little differently because the Scripture has given us these pointers. So leadership selection is a group endeavor, and God has a way of getting us just the right people at just the right time. He's always got the right people, and there's always next year. What we've learned tonight won't be useless to us whenever we're called upon to use it. Okay? So this is what God's Word says about choosing leaders. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your Word gives us good counsel, good advice, tells us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ, and what we can do that's wise to, and, and helpful to keep the church on track. So help us to be people who take to heart your wisdom from your Scripture. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.